Hey folks, Sam Jones here. Welcome to another edition of Off Camera, the show where I get to talk to iconic, creative, curious artists and find out how they got that way. And in this episode, I sit down with comedian, actor, and punk rock drummer Fred Armisen. Fred Armisen is known as one of the funniest and most memorable Saturday Night Live cast members. But surprisingly, a career in comedy wasn't something he originally envisioned. As a kid, he was obsessed with becoming a musician. Punk, his first love, was perfectly suited to his self-described weirdo sensibility. He and his band Trenchmouth had some success, but it paled in comparison to the record deals and acclaim his peers were getting. As he tells it, the hardest part about watching all the bands around us get famous was that I wasn't able to enjoy music anymore because I was so jealous. Fred's honesty and self-awareness led to more revelations. He wasn't lighting the world on fire with his drumming, but he knew he had a gift for making his friends laugh with impressions, a valuable skill for entertaining bandmates on long concert tours. Fred started wondering if he was supposed to be on a different path. He says, I worried for a moment that I was too late for a career change, but the rewards were so huge that I made up for lost time. Within a few years, I was on Saturday Night Live. I went through the side door entrance, and even though I wasn't a traditional comedian, I had impressions and characters. That side door proved to be the right one. Fred spent 11 years on Saturday Night Live. He developed and starred in Portlandia with Carrie Brownstein, did Documentary Now with Bill Hader, and Forever with Maya Rudolph. And he's at it again with Los Espookies, an upcoming Spanish-language show on HBO about goth, entrepreneurship, and chocolate. He's keeping it weird, and that's just how he likes it. Fred joins off-camera to talk about finding a lifesaver and pen pal in director John Waters, why The Clash informs just about everything in his life, and the time he got sent to the school psychologist just because he wanted to burn down Main Street. So pull up a chair and listen in. Hi, Fred. Hi, Sam. Thanks for doing this. My pleasure. We go way back. We go way back. And it's crazy to dive into your career, just realizing how much you have out there and how much is coming. This show, Los Spookies, on HBO. You had Forever on Amazon. I caught up with your special stand-up for drummers. I love Portlandia, obviously. 11 years in Saturday Night Live. You know, it's been amazing to watch your career and how it's sort of exploded since we first met. But I did want to talk about when we met because I think it was sort of at a time when you're, this wasn't your life. It was before you kind of came into your own, right? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of before, it was just as I was starting to do comedy. Right, and, and I was making a film about Wilco, mm -hmm. and you were opening for Jeff Tweedy yeah. on a solo tour, Yeah, and you were doing your character, Ferrisito. Yeah, I was playing this character. I did, um, Jeff asked me to open the show. This was before SNL. Right. I was just starting to, you know, to do more and more stuff with comedy. He asked me to uh, open, and I did that character, Ferrisito. I'm... That's who I auditioned with for SNL. Oh, really? But anyway, he, he, was, he said his shows were getting very serious. I just need some comedy, something easy. And I would open these shows, and no one knew who I was, and also they were very puzzled. Like, because I did this character. It's a Venezuelan character. And right, kind of like Tito, Tito Puente. Puente, Tito Puente of... Basically Tito Puente. Yeah. Doing these jokes. And uh, the audiences w weren't even angry. They weren't even heckling or booing me they were more confused and upset like you know why right why us but i enjoyed it i really enjoyed it and um it's the first time i've ever been on a movie screen 
was because of your documentary. This is the first time it ever appeared on something where you could sit in a movie theater and see me on a screen. So that was a really great feeling. Also, the movie is amazing. Oh, uh, thank you. That's very nice. This is before everyone was making documentaries about every single band. It, what, uh, what, it's amazing that you chose them and also that time. Oh, why am I giving you a review of your own movie? I'm so sorry. No, but, well, um, but, it, but I was always curious because we didn't know each other and we met literally backstage yeah. the night. I think he did two nights there. Yeah. And, and we met then and I don't even remember how the idea came up. If I asked you if you'd do something or... I don't remember either. I don't remember how... It'll, but I do remember you... Um, you know, I, when I first met you, when you were first f shooting, I didn't take you seriously. Uh, I bec only because you had a camera, and when people say, I'm making a documentary, just, <laughs> you just go, oh, oh, I'm sure you are. Oh, good for you. <laughs> but, you know, I, people have been not taking me seriously my whole life, so yeah. I'm not surprised. I don't mean that as an insult at all. I meant, I didn't mean that I take you as a person seriously. I meant more that your project. Right. But because you were sort of, I don't think you had much equipment. You might have no, had a I didn't. So it was like, crew. Yeah, it was like, oh, great. Much me I'm, and another dude. Good luck. And, you know, so it, I could just goof around in front of you. And right. um, it was more that uh, I just saw the music business and film business as just so uh, difficult in a way of was like, how do you get in? How do you even, making a documentary, it just seemed, it just seems impossible. So, um, someone with a camera is like, all right. Even, I even, you know, it's almost like Wilco wasn't that big at the time. So right. it's almost like that, too, of like, listen, there are some huge bands out there. Wilco, okay. You know you what's know. funny about that is that when I like a band, I assume everyone else feels that way yes. and knows them, and they're huge. And I started making that film, and people would say, what are you, what are you doing? And I'd yeah. be like, oh, I'm making a film about Wilco. And, yeah. and they'd be like, who? Oh, yeah. And I'd get that nine out of ten times. Yeah. I was like, uh-oh. <laughs> you know, like, maybe, maybe no one knows about this band. You know? it, it still happens to me. I, if, I tr if I think I'm name-dropping, right. there are still people who are like, who? And I'm like, am I crazy or are they not the biggest band in the world? Right. And I know that you know, Who's Could Do are huge, but I, I still go around going like, well, it's because I, I, I actually hung out with Bob Mould. Yeah. And I know he's big, yeah. but I'm just saying that there are, you know, there are... Uh, my assumption, you know, the same goes for TV shows. Or just because it has a billboard, I'm like, this is the biggest show in the world. Right. But anyway, what's ended up happening is people always, when they talk to me, strangers will use it as a deep cut of like, hey, I know you from that movie. So it's an instant connection. It's like a cool badge. Right. Of like, I, I, I know what you're doing. So, And Jeff uh, is just an old friend of mine. From Chicago days. Yeah, Because yeah. you used to play at Lounge Axe. And... Yeah, I worked for Sue Miller at Lounge Axe, too. Oh, you did? Yeah. So people, for people who don't know, Jeff's wife, uh, the way Jeff met his wife is because she booked bands yeah. at her club yeah. in Chicago. And so you, what did you do for her? Uh, answered phones. Really? Uh, yeah. Just like for, you know, the phones rang all day. Right. Bands wanting to play and... So it was just an all-day thing. People sending in cassettes and CDs, and uh, it was a it was a blast. I, I loved it. Well, when I met you, how much did you already have, sort of a career plan for comedy, or did you like? Were you still sort of floundering around trying to figure out what you were trying to do, or did you have a specific kind of path? So this is you know a case of um, the world sort of 
bringing me to another career as opposed to me doing it. So music was not quite working out, but then every time I did something with comedy, I had a new opportunity. So it happened uh, um, outside of me, including ask, being asked to do Jeff's tour. If I, if I had a band back then, or if I was doing something with guitar, I don't think he would ask me to do that tour. It was all of a sudden, I was being asked to open shows. That was like comedy was becoming a part of my life. And then 2001, I, did a, uh, I was on a sketch show pilot for Bob Odenkirk. Oh, really? That early? But that's to his credit, that he was, a, he w- was finding talent I was really nowhere yet. So um, that's when I was starting to get, and then 2002 is when I did SNL. <coughs> Excuse me one second. I've had this cough for like a week now. And um, we were like hugging and holding both hands. <laughs> for a long time, when he first greeted me, he held both my hands. I did. He coughed in my face. And he's like, it's so good to see you. And then, and then he I, I gave you a sip of my tea. Yeah, and you're like, you're yeah. like, try my tea. And I was like, but you're like, drink it from here. Ah. <laughs> oh. Can't believe it. You know what? It was it was my revenge for you not taking me seriously. That's right, and you got me back. Now, and I will take your illness seriously. Oh, you you can't not yeah. take it seriously. Yeah. I was in the hospital a day ago. <laughs> By the way, you couldn't have taken me seriously. I was just some. Uh, what was I? Some guy in a like weird mustache, a red tuxedo. Yeah, what, why? Gold tooth. No, but what was so funny about it was the uh, the whole idea was you were a journalist from Venezuela who had never heard Jeff Tweedy and you'd been oh, assigned right. you'd been assigned to do a story about him. Oh, I forgot about that. And and what's funny is when I started doing my research, I found the your Fred Armisen's Guide to Music and South yeah. by Southwest. Yeah. And you were sort of doing that then too. You were doing weird, uninformed interviews. Yeah. And I want to back up a little bit because in reading about you this week, I realized how much we have in common. We're both about the same age. We both loved The Clash oh, in yeah. high school. Oh, yeah. Because, like, Sandinista is my favorite record of all time. I, I'm right there with you. And falling in love with that band was different than falling in love with any other band I ever did in my life because it felt more like a revolution. It felt like some sort of permission or secret membership into a, a life that I could have that was, that was, I don't know, bolder or different. Or It, it, it sort of became... Like, uh, I don't know, a, a set of life instructions for me once I, once I found that band. I, I couldn't agree with you more. Life instructions by example, too. Oh, I'm so happy to hear that. And also Sandinista. We could do a two-hour show on that album. I, those, those songs come up. When I, when I hear those songs, I do not turn them off. I'm like, I'm going to listen to and the call-up like one more time. And they sound recorded yesterday. They sound great. They're timeless. It really informed how um, we did Portlandia. It informed how I do live shows now. Because how I, so? I, well, I got to see them. Yeah. And after one of the shows at the pier, me and my friends, were, we waited outside the stage, you know, like at, when the show was done. And after the show, uh, Cosmo Vinyl came out and said, all right, one, two, three, you guys, come on in. Just to really? come in and meet the band, hung out with, the, with uh, Joe and Paul. I got to meet them. Also, before they, the show started, they just sort of walked in. They didn't have, like, you know, a limo and an entourage. So I, I really took that as an example. This is how to be. Right. So whenever I do my shows, I always try to meet everybody. I, I just try to connect with people, and there was a patience to Joe Strummer. Who knows what I was saying to him, but I just remember him just sort of looking at me, you know, listening, and um, I took that with me everywhere. I'm like, if those guys can do it, 
you know, and they were really huge, I could do the same. Same thing with putting out records like Sandinista, um, just trying to be, you know, trying to be experimental, just trying to, I think they had a lot of humor in their, their music totally. and their little cartoons they had in there. So, um, God, I really, I, I, I idolized Mick Jones and Big Audio Dynamite. I was way into Big Audio Dynamite. So I still, um, I, you know, I look at pictures of them now, and I'm sorry, but they look great. Yeah. They still look great. There are some bands that sort of aged in a way that, like, you look back at the old pictures, and it's a little, it's not embarrassing, but some of the suits and some of the ties are a little, you know, new wavy. It's okay, but... The Clash, I'm like, why do those pictures still look it's great? It's still the coolest. They're still the coolest yeah, band. I know. And I don't think it's just me. I'm like, I think they found something. Well, we come from a time before sort of parents supported every hobby yes. that their kids had. I mean, my yeah. daughter's 11. She plays bass. She's Tina Weymouth's pen pal, like right back and forth. Whereas when I was growing up, <laughs> like skateboarding, Playing music, drawing cartoons, like that worried my parents. They were like, yeah. that's a ticket to the unemployment line, yeah, all yeah. of your interests. Yeah. Was that the same with you? Yeah, I mean, my parents did love music so much that they're the ones who introduced me to the Beatles. Oh, really? So they were, you know, for my whole life so much, I used to say that they didn't support me. But then when I recall, they did buy me drums and they did buy me a guitar. So, they, you know, I certainly did not buy those things myself. So I have to sort of... The older I get, the more I'm like, wait a minute. They let me play drums in the house. I cannot be complaining. That said, they were not psyched that I wanted to go to art school, that I wanted to play music, but they did introduce me to it. What was their worry about you? The same as any parent, and I'm glad that um, you just can't make a, a viable living from doing art and music, which for a long time I did not. So they were right for a while. Right. But I think I tried to shock them... The way to be shocking when we were teenagers, I'm sorry to keep bringing up age, you guys, but this is the deal. Um, I wanted to shock them by not being a typical teenager. You know, all the rock and roll bands and, you know, the sort of long hair and solos and stuff. I didn't, my parents saw that coming a mile away, you know. I wanted it, like, because the class were political, I was like, how, what if I was into political bands that had short hair? That was my way of being like, uh, you know, this isn't going to be what you expected. Hey folks, Sam Jones here. I want to take a break from the conversation to talk to you about this week's sponsor, Shady Rays. Shady Rays is an independent sunglasses company. So they're not some big corporation that overcharges for sunglasses because everyone knows sunglasses are way overpriced. Shady Rays is out to do it differently and give people a lot more bang for the buck. So Shady Rays sent me two pair of sunglasses. They have a great classic style. They look like the sunglasses my dad wore in the 60s when he used to race cars. They fit great, they're super light, and last week I went to a motocross race and I wore Shady Rays all day. And I have to say, I wear a lot of sunglasses and I'm usually not that happy. I either spend way too much money, I end up losing the pair of sunglasses, or I buy a really cheap pair at the gas station and I end up paying the price in another way. But Shady Rays is different. Their shades are polarized and made to hold up no matter what you do outside. So you get all the quality of expensive sunglasses without paying for that really expensive brand price. But the craziest thing about Shady Rays is the warranty. Their goal is to have the best warranty in all of eyewear, and you won't find anything stronger. They include free replacements if the shades are lost or broken for any reason. It doesn't matter what happens. If you drop them in the ocean, or step on them, or run over them with your motorcycle, they'll replace them. 
It's kind of amazing. You break them and you can get an entirely free pair. You just pay a small shipping and handling fee for each replacement. And bam, you're back in business. Plus, the quality of every pair is guaranteed for life. Entirely free coverage for life for the craftsmanship of each pair. Even with that strong of a warranty, they still manage to make quality that I can tell you, holding in my hands seems just as good as any expensive pair that I have ever worn. And the lenses look perfectly clear, and most Shady Rays are $45. And this company is giving back. Shady Rays provides 10 meals to fight hunger in America with every order placed, and they have provided over 4 million meals to date. They stand behind their product, and they told our team that if anyone has a problem, they throw a profit out the window and do what it takes to get it right. They have free returns and exchanges. You either love the shades or Shady Rays will pay to ship them back. That's it. And because they're a new sponsor for us, they gave us the best deal they have to offer. This is a Black Friday level deal that they're giving us here on this show. You can use the code CAMERA for 50% off two or more pairs. You buy one, you get one free. So that means you get two pairs of Shady Rays for $45. I mean, that's an amazing deal. Put one in your car, put one in your backpack, try different styles. I personally have one frame that's like dark walnut wood that are really classic looking. And I have one clear frame that feels light as a feather. This is the best deal that Shady Rays offers exclusively for us. You can redeem only at ShadyRays.com where you can find all of their newest and best shades. So check it out. Once again, that's 50% off your order. Get two pair of sunglasses for only $45 when you order right now and use the code CAMERA at ShadyRays.com. That's S-H-A-D-Y-R-A-Y-S dot com. Send me an email. Tell me if you like the sunglasses. And I'm going to post some pictures as well on my Instagram so you can check them out. All right, now back to the show. I wonder, as you were playing drums and, and like, music was your path, obviously. That's what you wanted to do. Were you sort of naturally funny as a kid, or would you do impressions and accents with your friends? Or like, was that percolating even though you didn't pay it any mind as a kid? Yeah, all the time. That really? was like, if I looked back, I you know that's really where I got reactions from people was doing anything, you know, with humor. That's where you know people really reacted, including bandmates. I don't think there was very much of like, oh my god, you are a genius drummer. I could barely, you know, I think I sort of. I love drumming, but I wasn't an innovator with that. You know, no one said, wow, you really turned rhythm around. <laughs> it was just became, it's a sort of, um, for me, drums were like an accessory. I love drumming. I'll always be a drummer. But it was with doing impressions in the van that my friends would sort of really make eye contact with me and say, you know, that's when we had a real exchange. And would you do impressions of other musicians you all, met? All the time. Really? Oh, yeah, all the time. Engineers, um, you know, sound guys, and then journalists from other countries. When we toured Europe, that's where the whole idea of the mean journalist came, came up. Because we would go to Europe, and, God, they were just so mean. We encountered, like, German journalists who were, and I love Germany, but, you know, your group is not so good. <laughs> really? Oh what do you do God. with a question like that? I think that they are not trying to be mean. I think that they're like, we're just being honest. That Fugazi played here uh, two days ago and it was very crowded. Now it's not crowded. And what, what do you attribute to that to? Yes, and the, the records are not the mixed very good. And, and that's, the, that's where um, the parody of the music business started for me. 
Um, but this isn't a bad thing. I think that's, this is just what got me to where I am. Right. And this is where I'm able to do music and comedy mixed together. You know, it's funny. You talk about that time, and, and I read about, you were in a band Trenchmouth for quite a while, right? Yeah, a long and, time. And it was sort of like a DC sound, like yeah. a little Fugazi, a little minor threat, a little bad brains type mm -hmm. of, yeah. like pretty aggressive punk rock. And what I was curious about was as you were like, you know, three, four years into that band, were you, was that going to be your ticket? Like the idea that we were going to make this band famous? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> It didn't turn out that way, or it kind of in its own way did, luckily, but oh my God, I had, you know, I just had a lot of expectations and... What was sort of your, your perception of how it was going to go? Oh boy, it's really, you know, I was in my 20s and got to meet a lot of great people, saw some great bands, I did a lot of drumming, I really lived punk rock, punk yeah. rock drumming, I lived it. My expectation was, I was like, this is how it works. You get on a label, you put out a record, and everyone starts buying the record. As soon as it's on vinyl, it doesn't matter what's on there, they'll buy it. <laughs> you tour, first it's clubs, and then it's like theaters, and then it's arenas. You know, kind of like the Red Hot Chili Peppers. So I think we'll be a Red Hot Chili Peppers. I think we'll be a Fugazi for a while. And then uh, some of these singles will take off and we'll be like a Chili Peppers type band, you know more towards a sort of punk. Right. And um, it's just how it goes. And then step by step that kept not happening. Record would come out and some people would, we had our fans, but not, you know, not with any like, didn't right, get bigger right, and bigger. Right, right. So not only did that not happen, it happened to every other band around us. It happened to bands that we knew. So I remember, and this sounds like such a made up kind of story, but. Uh, in Chicago, we practiced on the same floor of a building with Smashing Pumpkins. Oh, really? So you're like, yeah, it's happening to everybody. And, and we were more like, well, they're more rock, so that's okay. But they, they did that. They did clubs, right. theaters, arenas. And I'm like, oh, this is, it's fine. They're rock. And then more and more bands it started happening to. And I kept having an excuse for why it wasn't happening to us. Can you think of another example? Uh, Jesus Lizard, I'm like, right. you know, that's where it started to get a little, you know, it, the hard part about it was I was not able to enjoy music. I, I wasn't able to, to listen to bands because I was so jealous. So I remember Pavement were huge. Right. And I just wouldn't listen to the records. And I, now I love Pavement. Pavement. Now I love, you know, I should call them Payment. I, sh I love Payment. <laughs> But I couldn't even dislike, I just couldn't listen to it because there there's another man, huge. Especially with the Jesus Lizard. Now it's starting to encroach into your territory of... That's what I mean. And they're from Chicago. I'm like, angular music, you know, just, you know. Here's one that was very literal. I worked at a cafe called, called Ur Urbis Orbis. Okay. And Veruca Salt would come in. Oh, they came in once. Maybe it was just once. And I became friendly with them. Great people. Did Louise. you serve them? Yeah. Okay. Louise and Nina. And they came in and they were like, we have a band. We are, um, we're going to play, uh, what do you call this? A showcase at, I think, the Beat Kitchen. I can't remember the club. It was a club that cool people didn't play. Right. So I remember really feeling bad for them. Like, oh, they're going to play. And they think the way to get to the top is to play these showcases. 
Listen, I didn't. I can't remember. I don't think I said anything, but I was like, the way to do it is you play all ages shows. You know, you stick to your punk rock roots, and then you get on an indie label, and you know, this is this is the way to do it. I actually sort of was like, someday they'll figure it out while I'm serving them coffee, <laughs> and then you know, it couldn't have been a year later that they were signed and huge, and huge, and continued to. St- they went. They were on SNL. So what was the? Uh... The desperate voice, like in the back of your head, started to tell you as you saw all these things happening. It was very, it, that's another literal thing. That was something that, like, it was evidence in front of me. The last gasp, the last band was Tortoise. I and was they like, were super polyrhythmic, weird. No, like, they made the Minutemen seem like. Oh, a yeah, pop like a pop band. band. Absolutely. Uh, they, um, they started to, I worked for this company, the book tours, and I could see, I saw the numbers of like the places they were playing, and they didn't even have vocals. <laughs> You're like, we are doing something wrong here. I, I, had, I talked to the band, I was like, There's, this is not, this is, we are getting, we are really getting nowhere. And um, I remember I saw a drummer from another band, and the drummer was a little older, and I think I saw him walking down the street. Although now in my mind, I picture him carrying drums. I think he was just going to a cafe, coffee shop. Right. But I remember thinking, I don't want to end up like him. I don't want to end up like getting older and just being at this level. So, what was it you wanted so bad? I really wanted to be in a famous band. I wanted to be famous. I wanted to, not just for fame, but I just wanted to be like my heroes. I wanted to be like Stuart Copeland and Mark Mothersbaugh or whoever, who, you know, whoever it was at the time who I was idolizing. I wanted, to, I wanted that. Even Billy Corgan, I was like, that must be great to have a body of work that's known. So there was like a weird mix of stuff. You know, I would see Bill Murray appear on David Letterman and he was so charming and funny. Something in there was there was something in there that I really wanted. And knowing Jeff Tweedy was, there was another, you know, we had this relationship, but it certainly wasn't through music. And through Sue, and then I, as I started to, that video that I made that South by Southwest was made out of, partly out of frustration. With right, so you made this video where you, you went around and sort of did humorous, odd interviews with yeah. people. And I was like, oh, that's the beginning of maybe you finding what it is yes. you do. Like, why didn't you go the traditional route of stand up in front of a crowd or getting into a sketch troupe or something like that? Like, it seemed like a more of a DIY approach. It didn't, it. none of it appealed to me. Like, I don't have, I don't have the tools to be that kind of a stand up comedian, first of all, where I could go up on stage and say, my family is this, and you know, I just don't have that. I don't even have punchlines. I don't. I never did. I, I was never had the endings that people seem to have. And did you feel like, because you had spent so much time trying to make it in music, did you feel late? I worried. I worried for a moment, but the rewards were so huge that I made up for lost time. So, sure, I was late, but it, it, within three or four years, which is zero, I was on Saturday Night Live. So, I got like this side door entrance to like everything that I would have been doing for 10 years, doing all that stand up. Like I didn't have jokes, 
but I had impressions right. and characters. So for the Southwest, Southwest tape, that's me doing characters and sort of, you know, I, I did the German journalist, yep. I did yep. a blind person, I did a deaf person. Um, and it worked out perfectly well for what SNL is looking for. So now, was that part of the tape you sent in? No, but the characters ended up on a little bit of it on that Bob Odenkirk show. So okay. he was the sort of one who was able to sort of, from that I got a good tape to send to SNL. And then Marcy Klein found the tape and made Lauren Michaels watch it and that was it. When you were doing that initial stuff, because I also saw a, a thing you did where you, you went and auditioned for some either musical or movie that had a big tap dancing. Yeah, album. that was the same year. Like after the Southwest Southwest tape, I was just like, I want to keep doing this. Sort of like subversive humor. Yeah. Using the public as your props. Yes. But what I was curious about was what you learned about yourself doing that. Like, because I think a lot of people might think that would be interesting in theory and then go do it and find out how nervous they got or embarrassed or like, would you get nervous when you did it? No. I think that's part of it, is that, you know, there's something, I don't know what it is, but I just, I don't, I don't care. You know, I'm not, I just, I don't care enough to be nervous about stuff. And so. what about going around and interviewing musicians when you had wanted that for so long? Like, four years earlier, you're jealous of pavement, and now you're at South by Southwest, and you're able to lampoon sort of the industry and... It all worked in harmony with each other, because all of a sudden I had a reason to be back there with Pavement. Now, I can meet these people, even within myself, I felt more like, oh, I can be in this room. So you or, didn't feel like, oh, I, I failed as a musician and now I have to go. No, I don't have that kind of cynicism. It's more like, I wanna be at the party. I wanna be here, I wanna be backstage, I wanna be around these people. It's not working out with me carrying a kick drum case, but I have a camera and some, you know, hey, will you be part of this joke? All of a sudden, I'm more comfortable with myself. I'm comfortable being in the room, less self-conscious. It sounds almost like an accidental discovery of where you were supposed to be. Yes, it's exactly that. Hey folks, I want to take a little break from the conversation to tell you that Off Camera is supported in part by HelloFresh. Now, if you're like me, you want to be a good dad, you want to cook healthy meals for your family, and you probably don't have a lot of time. That's where HelloFresh comes in. Fresh pre-measured ingredients and easy to follow six step pictured recipe cards are delivered to your door each week in a special insulated box. Now I've been doing HelloFresh with my family for quite some time now, and it's a great way to prepare a fresh, healthy, tasty meal without having to spend that extra hour at the grocery store. There's three plans to choose from, the classic, the veggie, and the family, with the option to switch between them for when your tastes change. All meals come together in 30 minutes max, and they call for less than two pots and pans and require minimal cleanup. So you can spend less time meal planning and grocery shopping, and you can get that time back to do more of what you love. And another ancillary benefit of HelloFresh that I didn't even realize before we started doing it is that it's getting my kids trying a greater variety of food. When the HelloFresh box arrives, there's this quality of, ooh, what's it gonna be this week? And the kids get excited, and it presents so well on the plate that my kids are trying things that they probably never would have tried otherwise. The other day, my daughter ate pineapple on a taco for the first time and declared that she loved it. So HelloFresh has been a great addition to our family, and if you haven't tried it, now is a great time. 
because just by listening to this show, you can get $80 off your first month of HelloFresh. You just go to HelloFresh.com slash OffCamera80 and enter the promo code OffCamera80. That's the number 80, not the word 80. That's H-E-L-L-O-F-R-E-S-H dot com slash OffCamera80 and enter the promo code OffCamera80 at checkout. HelloFresh has made dinner easier, more fun, and more interesting for me and my family, and we're eating healthier, and that's a win-win. So try HelloFresh, and if you're having the same great experience that I am, send me an email and tell me about it, and maybe I'll read your email on the air, and if I do, we'll send you an off-camera care package. So try HelloFresh. That's once again HelloFresh.com, and the promo code is OffCamera80. Now back to the show. Was there a moment or a thing you did, a project or something that you could point to as, oh, that was the key that turned the lock that got me my audition at Saturday Night Live? There's a bunch of those. So early on, you know, it's, it's when South by Southwest, obviously. Right. Uh, I went on tour showing, just showing the video. Oh, really? So that already was like, my load in is a VHS tape. That's what I had to bring. People are coming out, people are writing about the shows, and then something like Wilco, you know, Jeff asked me to do that tour. I moved to LA and I started doing some stand-up at Largo. Oh, you did? Oh, yeah, and that's where Bob Odenkirk, that was the sort of key to sort of, he sort of legitimized a lot of it. I did some stuff for HBO. There was a show called Reverb. I don't know if you remember that. I, I kind of do remember Reverb. It was sort of sit, yeah, they would band do. would play a couple songs and they'd sit down with them? That's exactly it. Okay. And so they had, because of the South by Southwest tape, um, uh, I, I got to do some stuff on there. A little, very lucky, really good things that, that happened along the way that became right. sort of little keys and they all, they all just worked out. And the thing about it is it was all fun. I want to talk about how you, the Saturday Night Live thing, but before we go there, um, I was watching your special stand-up for drummers, yeah, which is great. But in that special, you talk about uh, a letter that you wrote to John Waters. Yeah. And I was really moved by that because, like I said at the top of the show, I think in our generation, there weren't clear defined paths for how you find mentors or get support or learn how to have an artistic career. Yeah. And you sort of wrote this weird letter to John Waters. I wonder if you could just tell me that story. So, when I was in uh, junior high school, yeah. I don't know what was going on in my head, but we had this assignment that was like, what would you do if it was the last day on Earth? This is eighth grade, I think. Okay. And I remember classmates just coming up with really boring, just awful things that they would do, you know, visit their family and stuff like that. I'm like, last day on Earth? And I just... I don't know if I was trying to be funny or what, but I wrote that, oh, if it was my last day alive, I'd go down to the main street of Valley Stream, New York, where I grew up, and I'd just destroy everything. I'd smash in windows, <laughs> light stores on fire. I thought it was great. And then I didn't get a grade on it. The teacher was like, can you see me after class? And she had this talk with me and then sent me to the school psychologist. And so I felt immediately like I was in trouble, but not even for you know, graffiti. I, I felt like I was in trouble. You know, My mom was worried. I had to spend a day with the school psychologist. And at the time, uh, I started discovering, and this is a reason to do interviews, by the way. It's because I heard an interview on the radio with John Waters. 
him and Divine, I don't know what they were promoting, but he was talking about, you know, shock value and being shocking and grossing people out and, uh, you know, his taste. You know what sure. John Waters yeah. Like, Who's this guy? He's into violence. I think he used to blow up his model airplanes or something. Something I was like, this guy, whoever this is, I want, I want to be like this person. And I bought his book, Shock Value. That was like my, I never read anything. And I read this like the Bible. It, the book opens up with this. If someone uh, pukes at one of my screenings, I consider it a standing ovation. Not that I'm into grossing people out, but more that shock, you know? Right. Weirdo. I was like, this guy, this, he has a book and he's a weirdo. It just, it was, as a, when you're a teenager, you just don't know who, who to be. And did you sort of think, I'm sort of a weirdo, and... Yeah. I thought, I'm kind of a weirdo, but what, where does the, what happens with this? And being the drama of being sent to the school psychologist, the reason it's dramatic is because I was taken from my friends, right? So it wasn't cool, like, detention. It was like, no, this is, you know, something's wrong deep in your head. So I had to take these tests. Oh, really? Oh, my God. So they, they were legitimately concerned that they might have a psychopath in their yeah. hands. And I still, you know, I still back up my paper. I was like, come on, this is cool. Visit your grandmother. <laughs> you <laughs> got one time? day left. Go nuts. <laughs> um, steal an airplane. Steal and absolutely <laughs> steal an airplane. I should have written that. <laughs> Boy, my imagination was limited that I just kept it to Valley Stream. I should have went, gone right to JFK and stolen an airplane. Because <laughs> I, I don't feel like there was something wrong with me. I was like, I was just trying to be funny. You know? Right. And I wrote to John Waters. That's another long story of how I got his address. Um, so in the book, he says when he's in New York, he visits Cookie Mueller, an actress from his movies. Okay. Went to the White Pages and found her phone number. You're kidding me. No, Cookie Mueller. Hi, I'm a fan of John Waters. Um, I just want his address. So she gave me her address. I wrote to her. She wrote back with his address. No way. Yeah, I called and I was even like, That's do people call you all the time? She was like, no, never. <laughs> wrote to him, he wrote me back. I told him what was going on with me. I got sent to the school psychologist. Why do you get to write books and travel Europe and make these movies? And he wrote back and he gave me advice. He said, don't just be shocking just to be shocking. Try to be funny. Try to have some individuality and just try to express yourself. And he saved my life in that he took me seriously and that he gave me a way out. He gave me, like, you can do this. You can be, you, these, are, these things can happen to you. And they did. He was sort of like a mentor from afar in a way. Yes. And he wrote, we wrote, became pen pals. So, really? Oh, yeah. So you sort of accidentally stumbled into somebody that took the time to, to tell you that you weren't a freak. Or better than that. You could be a freak, and this is how to, how to do it. You can make a living being like that. You can be, be an artist. You really put a lot of weight in the impact of that relationship? Uh, oh, uh, yes. I, I, can't, I can't emphasize enough what, what that does to a person. When, when you're young and you don't know what, what you are, you know, because I also wasn't like a virtuoso guitar player or a piano player. You know, it was this, what is this, what do you call, even call this kind of, you know, I hate to use the word artist again. 
but what do you call this? What is this? And for someone who, the guy who wrote the book, you know, and made these films, to reach out, it really was like, it was like a, a, a life raft. Because then I was able to go, okay, there's some beacon of where I can go from here. Well, let's, let's jump forward to the Saturday Night Live audition. I was curious about how that opportunity came up because you didn't go the traditional route. You weren't in a sketch group. You weren't at UCB. Mm-hmm. You weren't doing stand-up. Mm-hmm. So how did you even get the opportunity to, to audition? Well, the version of stand-up that I would do uh, is just doing characters, like Vericito that you saw. Okay. Go up there, do a few things. There's kind of jokes and just, it's, it's, an, you know, it's a character. Right. I had a few of those. Uh, I had a self-defense expert that I did, and I would do. So um, I got to do some. I would do those at Largo, and then you know I I moved to LA and uh, had like a, a manager and stuff. And here's we were starting to get a tape together. But when I was on Bob's pilot for a sketch show called Next, right? All of a sudden, I had this tape with a bunch of characters, but it's well shot. So that tape, my manager at the time sent it to SNL. Uh, Marcy Klein was yeah. working in the talent department there, and she really championed it. So thanks to Marcy Klein, um, you know, I got the call of, you want to come out and do an audition. Now, you know my life, and you know that I had a, many, many years of getting what I thought was nowhere with my band. Right. So to get a free plane ticket, I was already in a very good place. Like, I can't believe a company is going to buy me a plane ticket. NBC. So I already, this was already an elevation of my whole life. Right. Whoa. If this is all that ever happens to me, from punk rock drummer to this, I am good. This is amazing. And I had to work on something where I had... They said, I think, three impressions and three characters, something like that, in five minutes. They brought me in a stated hotel, got my timbales, and I really practiced. I did Freddy Cito. I just really practiced it, got it right, and brought my timbales, little mustache, gold tooth. I did self-defense expert, too, and um, I auditioned as Freddy Cito. Oh, you did? Yeah, so that I could break away and do characters and stuff. And then... um, I was there at the studio with Lauren Michaels, Tina Fey, and just meeting all these people. One of the first things I ever asked him was like, you know George Harrison, you've met George Harrison. You know, I just couldn't believe uh, somewhere there was someone who had any connection to the Beatles. That's what you said to Lauren Michaels when you met him. Yeah. First thing I asked him, I was like, oh, hi, great to meet you. Uh, are you seeing a lot of people, meaning auditioners? And he said, no. Oh, he's honest. You know, he wasn't like, I don't know. He was like, no, we're not seeing that many people. Whoa. Wow. And then George Harrison, and then um, then I got went to the studio, did this audition. Were you nervous? No. I couldn't believe I was at the studio. If it was the last thing I did, it was just too big to be nervous about. You didn't have any expectations. It wasn't like, I have to get on this show or I'm No, I wasn't like, like my that. comedy career that I've worked so hard to try to See, craft. that's an interesting thing, because I think a lot of people get to that audition stage, and it's been their dream their entire life. Yes. It would be like if the Smashing Pumpkins said, we're replacing our drummer. That's different. That would be nervous-making. Yeah, I couldn't, I wouldn't be able to drum right. I'd Isn't be like, funny? Mike, this is it. It's, 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 it's as if, if I was asked to play in the New York Yankees now. Like, you want to try it? They're like, yeah. Are you sure? It's your problem if you think that I, you know. 
Hey folks, I want to take a little break from the conversation to tell you that Off Camera with Sam Jones is brought to you in part by StoryWorth. StoryWorth was founded by a guy who wanted his dad to record his amazing stories. The family enjoyed the process so much that they launched in April of 2013 so that families around the world can share in this gift as well. StoryWorth makes it easy and fun for your loved ones to share their stories. And with StoryWorth's weekly emailed story prompts, stories are created by questions you've never thought to ask. And at the end of the year, you can get your stories bound in a beautiful hardcover book. Here's how it works. You purchase a subscription for someone you love, and each week, StoryWorth sends them an email with a question about their life. Their questions elicit entertaining, surprising, and sometimes very moving responses. They simply reply to this email with their story. All stories are private and only shared with the family that you choose. After a year, those stories will be bound into a beautiful keepsake book. It's a black and white interior with a color cover up to 480 pages in length. This is a great gift for Father's Day, even last minute, because once you give it, StoryWorth starts giving back. And it's a really unique way to say I love you and to connect your family and bring them closer together. And for any of you that have kids, it's an incredible archive of family history that can stay in a family for generations. For me, StoryWorth is great because although I'm incredibly busy with my own life and my kids' lives, I have quite an extended family and it's a great way to find out more about them. I love the fact that by me starting StoryWorth now, that in 10 years, my daughters will be able to learn things about my mother and father that they never would have known otherwise. Archiving our memories is such a great way to bridge gaps between generations, and StoryWorth really has it figured out. Here are some more details about how it works. You can write stories and upload photos by email, on the web, or in the app. And you can invite an unlimited number of people to receive the stories. So if you have extended family spread all throughout the country or the world, they can all receive the stories. And you can save and edit all your stories on StoryWorth.com. And of course, the data is secure and everything is private by default. You control who sees your stories. The subscription gets you one year of weekly story prompts. And this is sort of the secret of StoryWorth. Their story prompts are designed to elicit ideas and jog memories and create a larger picture than you could on your own. And I urge you to try it. It's such a unique idea and it's such a simple way to bring family together. And they're offering a special way for our listeners to get involved and save some money. You can get $20 off by visiting storyworth.com slash off camera when you subscribe. That's right. Just go to storyworth.com slash off camera, subscribe and get $20 off your subscription. So don't let your stories dissolve into the ether. Record them, share them, preserve them. I urge you to give StoryWorth a try. Now back to the show. So how long after the audition was it until you got the call or found out? Here's where it gets, this is, it just gets better and better. I auditioned with all these people, you know, met them, all really nice. And we are literally going down a hallway and Marcy Klein, before we get on the elevator, she's like, Fred, can I talk to you for a second about one of your characters? She brings you back and she's like, so what's this about you? You might have a deal at Comedy Central. So that question is you're already like, something's up. Something's about, you know, why is she asking? And I was like, no, no, don't worry about that. <laughs> Went to dinner with everybody from the audition. So I wasn't sure yet, but I was like, something's up. Did you go to dinner with other people who had auditioned? Yeah. Oh, really? And sure enough, she called me, step outside. I think, I think we're gonna work something out. 
So I, this is before texting, but I saved the number, and I saved it as best call ever. Best call I ever got. Just that NBC number. I just remember that I couldn't say anything at dinner. Wow. And I still didn't rush home. And I, I really treated it as like, we'll see, we'll see. You know, it was explained to me that if I don't get on that first show, I'm not in the opening credits. So I was like, I'm just going to keep it cool, keep it cool. Right. Wait till I do it. And then I can start. That's where your 10 years in a van experience helped you. Yeah, we've been pulled off of tours. I think, I suspect it's because people heard our music. They're like, oh, no. <laughs> the German journalist got to him. Yes. They're just oh, not he'll always good. be. He'll always be around. <laughs> I always have, I have a little German journalist sitting there waiting for me. Most, but <laughs> Is that in your self-critic now? Like, I, that l- sketch, it was not as good <laughs> as the one the night before. <laughs> Oh, my God. That sketch went on very late. Not as many people watch it. In the early part of the show, they watch the show more. <laughs> so I kept it cool and uh, just waited until I was on. And then that, I knew that my life was, was going to change, and, and it did. The moment, the very moment I started on SNL, everything, my life just became much, much better. So when you walk in after being hired you're walking the halls and you're seeing all these people that are on the show that you've watched. Yeah. Even though it wasn't your dream, I would assume there would have to be some sort of weird imposter syndrome type feeling of they're going to find out I'm not supposed to be here. Absolutely. That said, I knew I was there. I was like, look, I got here. These are the characters that I can do. And well, what was the perception of the, how the show worked versus the reality when you got there? And kind of who, who took you under their wing and said, this is how the job works? No, nobody. Nobody. Nobody does that. Really? No one yeah. said, come on, Fred, you're in the club now? No, it's more like, and this is what's good about it, is it's like you just have to figure out. Sink or swim. Sink or swim. And then you get to redefine what, what that means. So because there's no rules, really, it's sort of like, well, let's see, what can you do? You're able to sort of find what, you, what voice is going to work best for, this, for the show. Over the years, I used to think that there was a philosophy to how sketches got on, an, on the show or not on the show. I'd take things real personally and like, did they not like the way this? But a lot of it is just very sim- simple sort of like timing. Oh, I'm having like a million memories of what it was like. I'm just remembering because when I first got there. Yeah, what stands out? The thing that's best about the whole experience is not the time you spend on TV. It has nothing to do with that. It's that you meet people from around the country, cast members and writers, who think like you do. People who really make you laugh. So when I got there, I met these funny writers, I met Tina Fey, Horatio Sands, Rachel Dratch, Jimmy Fallon, all these people, people who think like, just, they're like, a heightened form of thinking, of they're so funny. And, and I've never and met... maybe they think they're weirdos, too. Absolutely. They, whatever they were in their schools, the way they look at the news, the way they look at... I had never experienced that ever. As a collective. As a collective, sitting in a room, watching, watching something on the news, and the way they'd point out, you know, what's going on in the background there? Why, are they, why do they have that bicycle? Whatever it is, you know, I'd never experienced that. Just this, like, it's like a drug. Hanging out with these people is like a drug. My Rudolph, her experience with music and the way they would mimic sounds of the 80s. 
with their mouths. Just, just that. I, that's the best part of it, is just meeting these people who think like that and engaging with them. That is what was, that is what I'll always remember. Like being in an office, writing with people, laughing so hard, I couldn't even catch my breath. How do you trust that your original voice can keep up? Oh, by, the, by their reaction. When they write you into their sketch. When they say, let's write together. When my Rudolph says, let's, let's do something where we play a, you know, a singing couple or whatever. Just that, just the invitation. When a cast member is only on for a year mm-hmm. or two or whatever, does that experience often not happen, that they're not finding enough of those moments of writing partners or getting pulled in? Is that sort of the proof is in the pudding type of thing? Wow, that's a very good question. That's probably where for them it starts to get, you know, that's a matter of chemistry, where they're not finding the writer. Maybe that writer doesn't work there yet. It's just the timing of who they can get to work with. But yes, that's where it is, because you need people to write with. Yeah. You need people to, to bounce ideas off of. You, you can't barrel in there with 12 sketches on your own. No, no, you cannot. You need... It's just good for you. It's good to get... Because, you know, when someone tells you, like, no, that's been done already, or that seems a little, you know, whatever, that's really important. You need it. You can't go there alone like that. Did you have to develop a, more of a thick skin initially? Oh, yeah. Really? Like, do you remember a time where, where oh. you got shut down and, and you felt like... It's the, it's the most... I mean, like, you really... You learn quick. Because you go in there a little bit like, well, I'm kind of a genius. Right? I wrote this sketch. I'm kind of a genius. Let's do this sketch. Let's, you know... Then they kind of let, you know, they do it for dress rehearsal. And you go in front of these... You, there's a crowd there. And the silence you are met with, like... First, you're, uh, you're like, <clears throat> well, it's just a bad crowd. They're, they must be tired. Then the next sketch comes on, you hear them laughing They're really hard at someone else. You get a real lesson in like, oh, you think you're great? Every week you've got to come up with something new and you cannot rest on your, what you think is so brilliant. In fact, if you have a success the week before, you can't come in the next week and go like, hey, it's me. You're back down to, it's, it's a really good school. It's a good school for like, do not take yourself do not think you're precious. But it's a very forgiving place, too, because they're sort of like, well, there's always next week. So I did a sketch, right? And it didn't go in front of the audience. I'm looking up because that's where the audience is. Dead silent. Well, then it's Monday, and then just write something else. Next week it goes great. So the lesson is don't take, take, take yourself too seriously, but you can have some faith in yourself that you're going to come up with something else. And I did the show for 11 years of that. It was like, I can't. I can't assume that it's all going to go great, but you can give yourself a little credit that something will work eventually. For Los Spookies, I haven't even talked about this, but... Well, um, let's talk... Let me jump in, because Los Spookies is your new show on HBO. Mm. It's Spanish language. Yeah. It has sort of elements of a telenovela. Yeah. Like, there's a melodrama to it with the music, and it's totally intriguing, but I realize as I'm talking about it, it's like... I, I'm curious how you pitched it to HBO, because because you could probably it's a hard show to explain. I know it's a, it was it was almost like the SNL audition where I'm like, if you guys don't want to take this, I way understand. <laughs> <laughs> but it was just that I wanted to do something in Spanish. And it's not HBO in Latin America. It's HBO in America. And yeah, that's we got lucky Spanish. with that because uh, my original pitch was to HBO Latino. Really? I was like, I want to do something on HBO Latino. Wouldn't that be cool? 
so it it just uh, Amy Gravit at HBO sort of she sort of plucked it. She was like, hold on a second. I, we, same like the audition. She sort of brought us back. She's like, let's hear this pitch again. We pitched twice, and I mean, yeah, it's who knows what it is. It's it's. It's like spooky, but also... It's a little campy. A little campy, a little melodrama, but they're the other writers I worked with, uh, Julio Torres and Anna Fabrega, are the ones who put it together to really give it that life. When you pitch something successfully like that, mm-hmm. what do you think it was that got them over the pump and said... Because I, I think it's a risk, it, it, just in terms of the language. Um, it's... An idea like this nags at me. So I almost walked into those pitches not thinking, please take this, but just let me get this off of my chest. Just get this nag away from me of this. Here's my idea. It's a Spanish show, and I don't know what they do. Something scary. Latin American culture, uh, when I've gone, I've been to Venezuela a bunch, and Brazil, and I went to Mexico City. I wanted to call this show Mexico City at first. I was like, I don't want to make it about the this sort of tenderness and preciousness and specialness of the culture. I was like, eh, enough. Let's, where's the punk rock in there? Where's the, what about goths? Right? Yeah. Not yeah. A, Mexican goths. Yeah. Let's, what? Chocolate airs. What, yes. It's insane. A chocolate company. What's going on? You know, I'm sure that in Latin America, they're not going, you know, we are Latino culture. They're not, they're not going, right. Look at the simpleness of our food or whatever, you know. They're music fans, and you know what you're saying is there's some sort of a discriminatory bias built into the way Latin America is depicted in the United States in culture. Yes, where it's uh, and and by the way, I don't don't think of myself as a hero explaining this to everyone. I just mean, as far as a TV show, I don't want to deal with, I don't want to deal with immigration. I don't want to deal with right. You know, I don't want to deal with the you know, I want to just I want the insanity of what goth is and what. Obsession with, and also chocolate. Chocolate, I think, is the chocolate industry is pretty big there. Yeah. So I just went into it with that. What if we had these four people who were obsessed with um, prosthetics and makeup and horror? Right. And we just went from there. And the original version had me in a chair intro- introing the whole show. We shot it and everything. Some of me walking around. Like a Vincent Price? Or... Yes. Okay. So we shot it and everything. And it was just extra. I was like, cut it out. This is, you know. Right. No, also, no one was saying anything to me. No one was saying, dude, that part's great. So I was like, I don't think this is resonating with anybody. You know, you say that, and it's so interesting to think about the culture of Saturday Night Live and just how you describe, like, there's no one that's going to lead you along and no. show you the ropes. Like, you're going to have to be a little bit of a detective about, about reactions and stuff to find out your place. And yeah. rather than someone being able to come up and say, that part's not working... You get to a point in your career where you have to sort of sniff that out on your own. Yeah. I've always, I always have this like a little table of SNL writers and Lorne Michaels in my head all the time. Really? All the time. Hey folks, let's take a little break from the conversation so I can tell you about the podcast Stroke of Genius. Have you ever asked yourself, why didn't I think of that? Or used something that made life so much easier and wondered, who came up with that? You know, the protection of our intellectual property is what helps great ideas come to life. We all have our own intellectual property, but so many of us never follow through with trademarking, copywriting, or patenting our brilliance. 
Subscribe to Season 2 of Stroke of Genius, where host Andrea Maddow chats one-on-one with some of the world's greatest innovators about how intellectual property protections help push their ideas to greater heights. Season 2 kicks off June 10th with guests including author and thought leader Temple Grandin, IBM technology strategist Lisa DeLuca, and inventor Kenton Lee. Learn how these innovators were inspired to turn their thoughts into things. Subscribe to Stroke of Genius on Apple Podcasts at ipoef.org or your favorite podcast platform. You know, it's funny. um, You mentioned Portlandia a minute ago, and I feel like it'd be one thing to be on Saturday Night Live for that long, but it wouldn't be until you owned or had ownership of your own sketch show to sort of really get the perspective of why things work or don't. Yeah. Because I often wondered, after doing Saturday Night Live for so long, mm-hmm. what's the itch he's still scratching with sketch on Portlandia? And then I thought, well, maybe it's by creating it on your own, it's a totally different feeling. Yeah, so um, because SNL's so big, right? it's a different thing if someone says to me, hey, SNL, it's like kind of like Rolling Stone magazine. Great publication. The institution's but bigger than the... It's bigger, yeah. yeah I, remember, so I remember thinking at the time that I just want something that resembles... Um, uh, the record, uh, the sort of discography of either Talking Heads or The Police. I like that because they, they really, both those bands ended. You wanted to have the indie rock experience of sketch Yeah, comedy. yes. And how did that sort of... And there's of... nothing against SNL, it's just so that no. at least, you know, it's like a, yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. At the, it, I, I also feel like as, as the years went on with SNL, you became more specific to you in the sketches you presented. Mm-hmm. And the example I think of is the sketch, it was the punk rock band reunion at the wedding. Yeah, I sort of see that with you, that, that there's been this learning curve of becoming more and more specific to your likes, your desires, your, your weirdo-ness of what you discovered with John Waters of you can pull the entertainment towards you rather than having to fit in with the entertainment. You know what I mean? Yes. I also maybe was, you know, had found enough humility to be able to fig- find a way for that punk rock sketch to work. Whereas if I had written that, so yes, you're right. And um, also took the years of trust from Lorne and, and the writers to be like, okay, obviously I... I have good intentions with these sketches. Right. You've also got to credit SNL for doing that too. I mean, how did they know that that would have worked? Um, that that sketch would have worked. Right. Um, and I do feel like I don't know if Lauren realizes it or not, but he is kind of a part of punk rock in that if you know they have the specials on early. Yeah, I'm just there's something in that show that like allows for punk rock in a way that no other show has. I think Gilda Radner did a sketch. Where she was like a Patti Smith type of singer. So they have, there's like a little cubbyhole, a little area in there where they do allow for that kind of thing. And, and I will say that I'm sure over the years, from learning how to write at that show, I figured out, hopefully, a way for that sketch to work on the show. If, had it been early on in my career there, it might have been not the right sketch. Right. But that sketch is like my love letter to, to life. That's like my love letter to punk rockers everywhere. And it's a very specific, like it's, I'm, I can't believe it exists. And it's a, it was a really lucky break. And yeah. Out of all my time at, S, at SNL, that's the thing I'm so glad I got to do. Is that true? Because it's, it's actually a love letter also to my record collection. It's like, 
if my record collection was alive, I was like, guys, I made something for you. Well, when you say it was my love letter to my life, it, it really does bring home how you, you went on this journey to kind of like discover who you were and then you kind of almost ended up back in the same place. Yeah, because I didn't get into that stuff just so that it could just be my teenage years. I, I made a life packed with those bands. Right. I wasn't like, this is my teenage years and I'll grow out of this. No, 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 no. My, I have a pact with all those people and with John Waters and that stays alive all the time. Now, I, I, I admire your, the path you took because you, you found something you loved and you went for it. And then you managed to take that career and share it in a way that, that could only come from your original you know, desire your, or, or the way you saw the world. I'm saying I'm butchering this. Let no, me try hey, this again. listen, I love it. Are you kidding me? <laughs> you don't have to try. I mean, like, but I think it's hard. It is hard when you discuss it's something really, like it's that. Really, it's really, really kind of you. I, well, uh, I love it when someone gets through to the mainstream culture with their original uh, roots intact. Well, thanks. Yeah, and you're, you know, you're a part of it, a huge part of it, and uh, I'd like to think that you know. None of this would have been possible without me. One could argue that. <laughs> One could argue that. I don't think so. I think that you were going to get here no matter what. I think that one of the things that is so impressive is just your relentless commitment to you were going to do it your way and you were going to keep doing it until something happened. You know what I mean? I, I would have exited that van a long time before you did. <laughs> <laughs> the first German, you know... Journalist that said there's not that many people here. I'd be like, I know. It's uh, yeah, over. he was not wrong. I was like, yo, I can, I'm, yes, I can see that. Well, it's uh, listen, I could, I could go on for hours and. Uh, Same here, and it's great to see you and good yeah, to do this. Yeah, great to see you too. Thanks for doing this. Hey folks, that's our show. Be sure to check out Fred's newest show, Los Espookies, on HBO. And don't worry if you don't speak Spanish. It's subtitled, and it's really good. Also, Documentary Now, Portlandia, and Forever are all great projects. Then there's those 11 seasons of Saturday Night Live reruns to keep you busy till the end of time. There's a lot of Fred Armisen out there. And you know what else? There's a lot of off-camera out there, and you can access all of it by visiting our website, offcamera.com. In addition to this podcast, Off Camera is also a television show and a magazine. First off, if you're enjoying this podcast and you haven't yet subscribed, take a minute, go to iTunes and do that, because that way you'll never miss another show. And while you're there, leave us a review and a rating, because that helps people find our show. And we would like that. And after you do that, you can dive deep into our archives at offcamera.com. We are getting close to 200 episodes, and you can access all of that content at offcamera.com. You can see off-camera weekly on DirecTV's audience network. But if you don't have DirecTV, you can also see every show we've ever done as many times as you'd like on any device simply by getting our off-camera television subscription. For just $4.99 a month, you can have access to the whole archive. So check all that out, visit our store, dive deep into the off-camera experience. And if you're new to the show, welcome. We hope you stick around. We hope you tell your friends. A great way to tell your friends is through social media. We are Off Camera Show at Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And I am Sam Jones on Twitter and Sam Jones Pictures on Instagram. And speaking of Instagram, you may know that I am also a photographer and a director. 
But what you may not know is that I photograph every guest that comes on this show. And we make this really cool digital magazine. We also have this archive of photographs afterwards that hopefully paints an even more complete portrait that is started in our conversation. So on my Instagram feed, you can see a lot of these photographs. And it's really fun to be able to do that with a guest each week. So check that out if you haven't yet. Again, it's Sam Jones Pictures on Instagram. So give me a follow, say hello, and deepen your off-camera experience. You can also reach me by email. I'm sam at offcamera.com. And if you have any questions, guest suggestions, or just want to get something off your chest, drop us a line. I want to thank everybody that works on the show each week. They work really hard to make this show, and there wouldn't be a show without them. Nathan Shields, Crawford Shippey, Sasha Snow, Michaela Galvin, and Kara Johnson. So when you see these people in the streets, give them a hug, buy them lunch. They're great people. They deserve your love. How are you going to recognize them, you ask? Well, I make them wear name tags. Just kidding, but I should. And most importantly, make sure to join us next time when I sit down with actress and director Olivia Wilde. It was a fun thing for me to set up the experience I always wanted when making love scenes. A true closed set. I, as an actress, for a hundred years have been doing love scenes where people are like, it's a closed set. And I'm like, there seems to be like 50 people in here. And they're like, oh, everyone in here is essential. Like, really? What is that guy doing? But I want to offer a closed set, which is just the absolute essential people in the room. And then I turned off all the other monitors and the rest of the set. Because that's the other thing I, as an actor, have always been like, okay, so we're in this room, but I know how this works. There's monitors throughout the set, out on the street, in a van. Like, there's monitors everywhere. So, like, cut the feed. Let's just have this be truly private, and then we can find something real. And it was also vindicating, because I was like, so it's possible. (laughs) It's been four years since she last sat down with me, and in that time, Olivia's taken a step back from acting in favor of exploring new career opportunities, namely directing. Booksmart is her first feature film, and it provides a nuanced and realistic look at the nature of friendships and identity during one of the most tumultuous times in life, the transition from high school to college. Olivia joins me to talk about the importance of zooming out on your life every once in a while, how cell phones are spoiling storytelling, and why being an actor can sometimes feel like being a circus animal. See you next time, off camera.